I take refuge in the Buddha, the one bright mind. I take refuge in the Dharma, the teachings that liberate us. I take refuge in the Sangha, companions along the way. I've never given a talk to a group of people in this kind of formation, so this is going to be fun. I hope you're all comfortable. And I first like to offer, express my gratitude to all of you who are listening and for this wonderful place, a place to practice, to explore, and to the land and all that we share with this particular part of the world. May we get to know each other better and appreciate all that is offered to us. Sashin practice consists of many different aspects. But working together as a community is one of those. And as we begin to function as a group and as our days and activities become smoother and our minds settle down, we begin to hear the teachings that can come through throughout the day, and even throughout the night. These teachings may come from many different voices, from the voices of the teachers and leaders, voices from within ourselves, from the earth itself, from the sun or the sky, or the salamander that we found in someone's bedroom. They can come from the 10 directions but we need to have the capacity to hear, to be able to receive those teachings. When we become more quiet, both outside with less chatter among ourselves, people often wonder why we have noble silence all the time and why we have quiet, yes, why we, uh, insist on quieting outside chatter. This is part of the experience, part of how we are able to communicate in a different way. But we also we quiet down the outside chatter, we have to quiet down the inside chatter. Then we can actually be present for what's really happening. Not our preconceived ideas or made up stories, about what's going on. <coughs> We're really good at making up stories and filling in the gaps in our understanding. Stop that. Stop doing that. Stop making up stories. Kisei has suggested several things we can do to turn down the volume in our own inner dialogue. We also give too much bandwidth to our thoughts and thoughts about our thoughts. So we can narrow that down. Then we can let other forms of communication come forth. And we can begin to take in talks and instructions and listen to the chants. We can again begin to hear what others are saying in this silence. This also can help us have more faith in our practice. 
faith and trust and confidence that this practice really works. Another practice that's helpful in this area is just switching off thinking to switch off thinking, switch on awareness. So imagine that you have a toggle switch and you can toggle back and forth between awareness and thinking. In fact, let's try it right now. I'm sure we all can do this. So toggle to thinking, and I'm going to read this little passage, and then we'll toggle to awareness, and I'm going to read it again, and you'll see what's the difference. So thinking first. Just have the thinking, rational, logical mind. We think we may realize there are many entrance gates into the Dharma. With thinking, we realize that there's many. We chant it every day. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. But when we hear or experience this through awareness, then all of a sudden, Dharma gates seem to appear everywhere. A mosquito biting you can be a Dharma gate. A spider sitting in the circle in the morning, the dew running down your face or other things on your face. And then we can take in the famous lines from Dogen's koan, uh, Genjo koan, that be begins to take on new meaning. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas. To be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas is to free one's body and mind and the body and mind of others. No trace of enlightenment remains and this traceless enlightenment continues forever. Now toggle that switch to awareness. And just let the words roll over you. With thinking, we may realize that there are many entrance gates in, into the Dharma. We chant it every day. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. But when we hear or experience it through awareness, then all of a sudden, those Dharma gates actually appear. A mosquito biting you can be an ant a Dharma gate. A spider sitting in the circle, dew on your face, other things on your face. And then the famous lines from Dogen, Dogen's Genjo Koan, begin to make new sense, new meaning. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas. To be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas is to free one's body and mind and the body and mind of others. No trace of enlightenment remains, and this traceless enlightenment continues forever. So you may want to sit with that toggle on awareness. Or you may want to sit with that toggle on thinking. You have a choice. But we're encouraging awareness. 
So we, we're working, we're living here, we're outside, We've take, we're taking a week to live much like the Buddha and his followers did, going forth away from home and all its comforts, to live outside, close and up front, up close and personal to the earth, or at least some version of that. And I've become very curious about how we change when we spend more time outside. What happens? How do we act differently? What do we notice? I'm also curious about the effects of spending more time inside. How our environment shapes us or how we shape our environment. Our, in my opinion, our current modern Western environment, we, we have shaped, what we have shaped is one where we have become separate, separated from our home and our families. We have forgotten that our home is the earth, this very earth. And we were born and vitally dependent on the earth, that the plants and trees have been here for years. Trees that can long, have long lifespans of up to 2,000 years have been in existence for more than 370 million years. And we kind of just disregard trees as having any intelligence or anything to teach us. Of course, that's why we're here. So please take some time to explore the wonderful trees right here on the edge of the forest and deeper into the forest. And we'll have more opportunities to explore trees in different ways as the week goes on. I'm sure that many of you are aware that there are more and more studies about the effects of our well-being when we're near, we live near parks or have opportunity to visit parks or gardens. People all over the world recognize the importance of our relationship to the natural wor world. In Scotland, they have a thing called ramblings, where they wander and they do it in groups and they eat together outside. In Japan, they have forest bathing. And in Denmark, they've built a special spiral staircase that goes to the top of the trees so people can experience what it's like to be in the treetops. It's called Treetop Experience. <laughs> Good name. So like many things, we know this intuitively. And it's been part of our cultures, many, almost all cultures. But now we want the scientific evidence to corroborate this. To the, we know that it, we want an authority to tell us, that, okay, it's good for you to sit out in, the, in nature. And maybe that's all fine and well. Maybe that's what our rational side of us needs to know. But let me, let's go and let's see what Thich Nhat Hanh has to say about this, this subject.
more on awareness level. You know, not discounting science. Science and, and religion meet together in these different ways of explaining the world. So Thich Nhat Hanh says, at this very moment, the earth, the earth is above you, below you, all around you, and even inside you. The earth is everywhere. You may be used to thinking that the earth is only the ground beneath your feet, but the water, the sea, the sky, and everything around, everything around you, us, comes from the earth. Everything outside us and everything inside us comes from the earth. We often forget that the planet we're living on has given us all the elements that makes up this body. The water is our flesh, our bones, and all the microscopic cells inside our body all come from the earth and are a part of the earth. The earth is not just the environment we live in. We are the earth, and we're always carrying her with us. Realizing this, we can see that the earth is truly alive. We are a living, breathing manifestation of this beautiful and generous planet. Knowing this, we can begin to transform our relationship to the earth. We can begin to walk differently and to care for her differently. We will fall completely in love with the earth. When we are in love with someone or something, there's no separation between ourselves and the person or thing we love. We do whatever we can for them, and this brings us great joy and nourishment. This is the relationship each of us can have with, with the earth. This is the relationship each of us must have with the earth if the earth is to survive and if we are to survive as well. This is from a book uh, by Thich Nhat Hanh called, entitled Love Letters to the Earth. And for many years I, I've had this book, but I've never really looked at it because I just thought it was a little too romantic, the love letter part and the falling in love. But really what he says about here, this falling in love is that you care for the earth. You want to protect the earth. You want to nourish your, the earth. That type of falling in love is what the majority of the book is about. And so I found it to be very um, nourishing and, and helpful in seeing how we have separated ourselves from the earth and how falling in love with the earth is simple to do. We probably all have, are in love with the earth. So we may want to write our own earth uh, love letter to the earth, or maybe not, depending on your the way that you operate. Robin Wall Kimmerer, Kimmerer um, has written a couple wonderful books, one called Braiding Sweet Grass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. And she's combined those three lenses and views. She says, we need acts of restoration, not only for polluted waters and degraded land, but also for our relationship to the world. 
we need to restore honor to the way we live so that when we walk through the world, we don't have to avert our eyes with shame so that we can hold our heads up high and receive the respectful acknowledgement of the rest of the world of the Earth's beings. She also says, repair of ecosystem structures and function alone is insufficient. Restoration of a respectful, reciprocal relationship to the natural world, world is also essential for long-term success. So what we're doing here is discovering our relationship to the earth. And we must transform this relationship to the earth. She says again, we need to restore the way we live. So this is what we're doing here. This is what we're attempting to do when we turn our attention from thinking to awareness. This is what we're attempting to do when we come across phrases in our, in our chant book, such as the one from Precious Mir Samadhi that says, one on the verge of realizing the Buddha way contemplated a tree for 10 long kalpas. I hope most of you have heard that and said, what is that about? What, are, what, what does that phrase mean? 10 long kalpas, what's a kalpa? Well, it's a long, long period of time, an eon. But in some ways it's, it's also thought about a kalpa is the period between creation and recreation of the world. So, the, so it may be one way of looking at this fra phrase as saying, we humans have had to sit through recreation of the world 10 times to actually understand trees or, or appreciate what trees do for us. Just in the simple uh, reciprocity of, of breathing oxygen and carbon dioxide that we we need trees, we need plants, or we'll die. They don't particularly need us. In fact, we may be more of a detriment to the lives of a tree. So maybe this, this phrase is saying, we have to sit for a long time to understand what's really going on. And if you are on the path, and you're realizing the Buddha way, look to trees. So how do we go about transforming our relationship to the earth? There may be many ways to do this, and I'm sure there are, but today I'm just gonna talk about two things. I've talked about a lot already, but um, I'm gonna talk about communication and then touching the great mystery. We have already set out with our work on communication, settling the mind, lowering the volume of thought, giving less bandwidth to thought, and then toggling from thinking to awareness. Opening awareness to sound and to our other senses. Receiving communication without our rational thinking mind always jumping in. 
it's a habitual pattern that we need to break so that we can open up to the possibilities of learning how to communicate with the earth and all that abides. So continually returning to awareness, opening the senses, allowing information to come in and not always be putting out. That's the thinking, is agenda, problem solving. It's good for some things, so we're not saying get rid of it altogether, but here, toggle to awareness, become open to what may occur. Open the possibilities of learning how to communicate with the earth and all that abides. Maybe those deer have something to teach us. And then the second part is what I'm going to call the great mystery, not the mystery of detective stories where our intellect likes to solve puzzles, but touching into the great mystery, the great mystery of life. We can do this by experiencing a different type of information or communication, allowing ourselves to sit without being tethered to thought. When I was in Japan for a short time, we went to Sogenji, and I had a chance, we had the chance to meet with Harada Roshi, and I had one question to ask. I had one chance to ask one question. <laughs> and so I said, what should we be teaching people? What is the main thing we should teach? And he said, teach them not to believe their thoughts. It's the same thing. Move to awareness. Let go of thought. But our thoughts seem so real. They seem so true. But this is time to relax and try another way. I'm going to give a little example of an entrance gate through nature for me. Um, I always think that nature was my entrance gate to Zen and to Buddhism. When I was about 10, we moved to Reno, Nevada. And a lot of people think, oh, that, woo, that sounds rough. <laughs> but in reality, the nighttime sky was awesome. And all the stars lit up. And our whole family was intrigued by it. My whole family was intrigued by what you could see. Vast nighttime sky stars, it opened up the mystery. And then when I got older, I was able to do a lot of backpacking in the Sierra Nevadas. And that opened up more and more opportunities for mystery, wonder, and awe. And John Muir was one of our heroes of the time. John Muir was a Scottish-born American naturalist whose writing contributed to the preservation of Yosemite and other national parks. And through his founding of the Sierra Club, helped spark the modern environmental movement. And so here, this is a book on his spiritual writings. There's a lot of other books about his um, observations. He, he, 
He was kind of an amazing person. He did all types of things. But I want to read this little bit of his spiritual. He was in Tuolumne Meadows. Clouds at noon occupied about half the sky, gave half an hour of heavy rain to wash one of the cleanest landscapes in the world. How well it is washed. A few minutes ago, every tree was excited, bowing to the roaring storm, waiting, swirling, tossing their branches in glorious enthusiasm, like worship. But though to the outer ear, these trees are now silent, their songs never cease. Every hidden cell is throbbing with music and life, every fiber thrilling like harp strings while incense is ever flowing from the balsam bells and leaves. No wonder the hills and groves were God's first temples. And the more they are cut down and hewn into cathedrals and churches, the further off and dimmer seems the Lord himself. Same may be said of the stone temples. He says of the trees, but though to the outer ear these trees are now silent, their songs never cease. He also, this other little part, he says, perched like a fly on the Yosemite dome, north dome, I gaze and sketch and bask, humbly prostrate before the vast display of God's power, and eager to offer self-denial and renunciation with eternal toil to earn, to learn any lesson in the divine manuscript. I'll give up anything to, what, to learn what you have to say. Now the sun breaks forth and fragrant streams rise. The west is flaming in gold and purple, ready for the ceremony of the sunset. And back I go to camp with my notes and pictures, and the best of them printed in my mind as a dream, a fruitful day without measure, without measured beginning or ending, a terrestrial eternity, a gift of good God. The deeper the solitudes, the less the sense of loneliness, and the nearer our friends. So I was hiking with a friend, very close to where, I mean, almost exactly, Tuolumne Meadows, the same place as John Muir. Of course, it was about 100 years later. Yeah, really close to 100 years later. And we were young, maybe 20, and we were backpacking in the John Muir Trail. He was our hero in one of my earlier lives. Our trip was beautiful, but eventful. We were pretty naive and young, and our packs had gotten, our food had gotten, animals had gotten into our food. We were tired, we were wet, we were hungry, we were, I had blisters and my feet were bloody. We were climbing up the ridge, the sun was about to set, we didn't have a camp spot. And all of a sudden, these are the days before cell phone, before a camp stove, we didn't even take a tent. We just had these army ponchos. 
and there's just the two of us, and there was very few people around. You know, we no one was there. We were alone, dark. But then, all of a sudden, there was the most majestic sunset, and it grabbed my attention and my friend's attention. And that experience of being in the flow or with everything was just, I was just there with it. It was, it was like wonderment. And everything else was gone. All my worries, my the difficultness of the day, everything was gone. And I was enveloped in the sunset. And interestingly, as it left, we weren't grabbing it. We weren't saying, stay. I want to see another sunset. Well, we hope to see another sunset someday, but it wasn't like we want to replay it. That was it. It went on. And then it was time. Whoops. We have no place to camp. And this very interesting thing happened. I turned around and looked and, and spotted a little cave that we could crawl into and sit in and camp and, and, and spend the night. Sandy bottom. We did that. And um, water, snow melt, came down the ceiling and dripped into our, our cups. So we had water. It was like a miracle. And it was just enough. We were satisfied. And I slept with um, the earth holding me. And I felt supported by the earth. But what I learned from that was three things is what at least came back to me now, um, was, some, was respect, humility, and wonder. Respect that the earth, like this body, very body, is both strong and fragile. It's beautiful, but there are potential dangers. Respect for the power and magnitude of this earth, which has created us, but humble by my small place in the world. I'm just one of the many creations that have come from the earth. We can see that often in, if we look at Chinese landscape, the old ones where they're like, the, the, the landscape is huge and the, People are tiny little. That's how I felt. And that's humbling, and that's, that is satisfying in, a, in an interesting way. And I could rest in the support of the earth within the protection of that cave. And there was water. Everything was fine. We slept, and the next day we went on, never giving it much thought. But no, that's not true. I'm thinking about it now. It's been 50 years since that happened. It made a big impression on me. It comes alive again as I revisit when I saw John Muir's writings when I'm out here. Over the years, nature has helped to sustain me, nourished and refreshed me, expand my view of place in the world, helping me to drop off my self-centered view but to continually be in awe and wonder of all that is part of our family here on earth. I used to say that I went to the church 
with no doors. <laughs> I just lost my place. Um, much like the cathedrals and temples that John Muir wrote about. But then I got, I found Buddhism and it, it added another dimension to my life. But we've, kind, we've fallen out of the garden. And this is how I, I see the state of humanity in the West these days. That we're like adolescents who go off with this naive confidence that we're independent and no longer need or want the advice of parents or anyone who has lived longer than we have. And we, as an adolescent, we would tend to cut off communication, reduce listening, believe that the parents who cared for them and protected them and guided them for many years now have are quite absolute, redundant, and maybe even a little dim. In our life, in our growing up, we see adolescents do this and we think that's a developmental stage and they're, it's on their way to maturity. It's a phase that they have to go through. But I see this as how we act as adults towards our mother, the earth. We humans are more important. We know more. We're in charge. We're intelligent. We know what's best. We take what we want. There's no consequences. This is our arrogant side, our side that ignores cause and effect and discounts our deep, deep interconnections. The plain fact is that the earth is our home and we are made up of the same elements as everything else in the world, maybe even the universe. Thich Nhat Hanh says, when we look at our own body formation, we see Mother Earth inside us. And so the whole universe is, is inside us too. Once we have this insight of interbeing, we can have real communication with the Earth. So once we see this deep interconnection of all things, then we can begin to communicate with the Earth as we calm our minds and turn down thought, we can begin to communicate with our Earth Mother. He goes on to say, the Earth contains the whole cosmos. If we think about the Earth as just the environment around us, we experience ourselves and the Earth as separate entities. So when we talk about this separation, we're not the first people to recognize it. We may see the planet only in terms of what it can do for us. We need to recognize that the planet and the people on it are ultimately one and the same. When we look deeply at the Earth, we see that she is a formation made up of non-Earth elements, the sun, the stars, the whole universe. Certain elements such as carbon, silicon, and iron formed long ago in the heart of far-off supernovas. Distant stars contributed their light.
when we look into a flower, we can see the flower is made of many different elements. So we call it a formation. A flower is made of non-flower elements. The entire universe can be seen as a flower. If we look deeply into a flower, we can see the sun, the soil, the rain, and the gardener. Similarly, when we look deep into the earth, we can see the presence of the whole cosmos. A lot of our fear, hatred, anger, and feelings of separation and alienation come from the idea that we are separate from the planet. We see ourselves as the center of the universe and are concerned primarily with our personal survival. If we care about the health and well-being of the planet, we do it for our own sake. We want the air to be clean enough for us to breathe. We want the water to be clean enough so that we have something to drink. But we need to do more than use recycled products or donate money to environmental groups. We have to change our whole relationship with the earth. We tend to think of the earth as inanimate matter because we've become alienated from it. And in a way, we're also alienated from our own bodies. We're caught up in all the other things of life. So we've forgotten that the earth, that she's part of us and we're part of her. Because we're not taking care of the earth, we too have become sick. So that what we are doing here now, and my sincere hope, is that we will continue, is to cultivate this non-separation. Cultivate non-separation from ourselves and the earth. When we look deeply into a blade of grass or at a tree, we can see that everything is alive and part of this whole mysterious network of life. Even the soil is alive with a billion living organisms in a cubic, in cubic inch of soil. And what is soil but the rocks that have formed from this very planet? Each dust particle has its own intelligence and living reality. Nothing is left out. The earth is right here. She supports us in very concrete and tangible ways. No one can deny that the water that sustains us, the air that we breathe, and the food that nourishes us are gifts of the earth. We didn't make those things. They're here. We need them. They're gifts to us. And there is a deeper mystery that's often pointed out through literature and music and art and religious writings and spiritual writings and all types. You'll, you, I'm sure, have everyone has touched into these. And there's one I'm going to end with that's called by Woody Guthrie that I ran across a few years ago. Woody Guthrie was hired to write 
folk songs, and he came to Oregon for about a month. They hired him, the, I think it was the federal government hired him to write these folk songs. And they said, write one song a day. So he wrote every he wrote a song every day, and he said he didn't have any trouble. And probably the most famous, some of the most famous ones are, "This land is your land," but this little this one is "Holy Ground." I think it pertains to us. So he wrote these words in 1954. Take off your shoes. Take off take off your shoes. This place you're standing is holy ground. Take off, take off your shoes. The spot you're standing is holy ground. These words I heard from my burning bush. This place you're standing, it's holy ground. I heard my fiery voice speak to me. This spot you're standing, it's holy ground. That spot is holy ground. That place you stand is holy ground. This place you tread, it's holy ground. God made this place his holy ground. So take off your shoes and pray. The ground you walk, it's holy ground. Take off your shoes and pray. The ground you walk on is holy ground. Every spot on earth I traipse around, every spot I walk, it's holy ground. Every spot on earth I walk, it's holy ground. Every spot is holy ground. Every little inch, it's holy ground. Every grain of dirt, it's holy ground. Every spot I walk, it's holy ground. If we could just remember that, every place, everything is holy ground. So we're taking off our shoes and we're praying. We practice so that we can see that every spot is holy ground. So please practice diligently with communicating with the earth. And in communicating, be receptive and listen. We can communicate with the earth and all that has been created on earth. We'll see if we can. As we contemplate a tree or a cloud or a blade of ground, a blade of grass, remember this earth where we stand is the pure lotus land and this body is the body of Buddha.